You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. This morning I was wrestling with um, what to share back early in the spring. I ran out of real estate in the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant, had finished preaching and teaching through the entirety of the Brit Chadashah and recognized that I'd only gone through about 40% with you of the Tanakh. And so uh, we're going to spend the rest of the summer in the book of Psalms. Today I want to uh, speak kind of on an overview, and this might be a snore fest for several of you because we're going to look at it maybe at a higher level and a more intimate level than you've uh, looked at the book of Psalms and hopefully begin a process this summer of reading through. Listen, if you, if you spend time with us this summer, the rest of it in the book of Psalms, read two or three Psalms a day, you'll finish by the time the sermon series is finished and you'll learn a lot and the Lord will bless you. And so the broad term, uh, ketuvim, how many of you know ketuvim, writings? reflect the variety of the material collected in this canonical division of Scripture, including works about uh, Israel's past. We find that in the Chronicles. Prayers we find in the book of Psalms. Uh, We have wisdom literature in the Ketuvim, including the books of Job, book of Proverbs, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, and apocalyptic prophecy as well as found in the writings Uh, Mainly, we find that in the second half of the book of Daniel. Now, Ketuvim has received less attention than the other biblical books within Jewish tradition. And so this diminished attention is quite unfortunate, my friends. These books are some of the most amazing and interesting biblical books. And also the most significant books, I believe, for understanding the Bible as a whole and for following the development of Jewish thought in Second Temple times. So for the rest of the summer, we're going to be looking at the first book of Ketuvim, the largest and perhaps most widely used book in the Scriptures, the book in the Tanakh quoted most frequently in the New Covenant, the book of Psalms. Of the 150 Psalms, the New Covenant quotes 35 of them. There's no other book in the Bible where I and probably you have personally found more help in our lives when we are going through crisis than the book of Psalms. Today I want to give us an overview of the Psalms as an introduction to our study of many specific Psalms in the weeks ahead. Today's message gives some basic information that we really need to gain maximum benefit from our study and from our own reading over the next couple of months in the book of Psalms. But in addition to imparting information today, I hope to motivate us to meditate on the Psalms regularly for the rest of our lives. And so let's begin by viewing this book. Guys, if you can cue up that video uh, of the book of Psalms at a 30,000 foot level. These poems invite us into an experience, to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles. And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at 
here. Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals. You'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain and you're in his living room. So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom. Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile. Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there's been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah, God placed humanity in a garden temple. And here, humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms, and so are exiled from the garden. But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope, about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah, or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they're planted in the river of God's life. Yeah, that's beautiful, but who's it supposed to be? Well, remember that story in Genesis? After humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise. Oh right, a future human, the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion, praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are connected to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel. Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. 
and he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before the temple was even built. Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. And so David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's like a prayer coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in good times and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets, and they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people. This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put down. No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. They're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God. In the spirit of Comic-Con, that is a great video, isn't it? <laughs> Let's unpack that video clip and some, to some finer detail, have a proper understanding of what lies before us over the next eight sessions together. Let's talk about the title for a moment. I don't have an outline for you, so take some notes in the app if you'd like or on uh, paper and just kind of open with me to the Psalms. We're just going to kind of be talking as an overview, and I encourage you to just flip through your Psalms. Uh, look at some of the things we're going to be talking about. The English name of the book was derived from the Greek word psalmoi. Psalmoi meaning songs sung to a stringed instrument. The Hebrew title, Tehillim, is attested actually in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, better describes the content of the book as songs of praise. And so while we no longer have the tunes... We need to remember that the Psalms were Israel's hymns. They were the songs set to music. Let's talk about its arrangement. Let's talk about its authorship, date, and features of the book of Psalms for a few minutes. Psalms, as the video showed, is a collection. Actually, it is a collection of collections of poetic prayers. You see, poetry envisions the world metaphorically. Listen, if you didn't like poetry like myself growing up, the book of Psalms is going to be a little bit of a stretch for you, but it offers an alternative way of seeing reality. You see, in metaphor, two things are brought together that don't generally occur together. They collide with one another. They explode, leaving in their wake a new way of seeing. And so much of the difficulty in understanding poetry arises from the difficulty in recognizing what is metaphor, what is not metaphor, and in perceiving the meaning of the metaphor. For example, just is one example. We quote it often, right? Psalm 133, 1. How good and pleasant it is that brothers dwell together. It contains a metaphor that is often overlooked. The verb dwell together, shavat yachad. It's actually, my friends, a legal term that means to live in joint tenancy. That is to hold land in joint ownership without dividing it among separate owners. The psalm is actually not primarily about harmonious family life as I, along with so many of you, have previously preached and thought. 
but it's about brothers holding land together. Metaphors can have many permutations. The Psalms are often deeply personal and are intentionally crafted literary works. They're not impromptu expressions. The origin of most of these poetic prayers has been lost to us in obscurity, but they are preserved because they were likely used liturgically in ancient Israel, certainly in the Second Temple, uh, and in some cases, perhaps even in Temple Number 1. The Psalms are the songbook of the people of God as well in their gathered worship as well. These songs cover a wide range of experiences. They cover a wide range of emotions. They give God's people, they give us the words to express these emotions and to bring these experiences before the Lord. Yet the Psalms don't simply just do that, express emotions when they're sung by faith. They actually shape the emotions of the godly. As we saw in the video, the Psalms are arranged into five books, right? Book 1, Psalms 1 through 44, could be called the book of personal experiences, mainly of David. Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72, the book of Elohim. Book 3, Psalms 73 to 89, uh, the dark book. Book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, the book of the king, and finally, the final book, 5, Psalms 107 to 150, is, is entitled the Book of Praise. Many commentators like to, to mention that. And each of these five books, by the way, if you're just flipping through the different sections right now of the Book of Psalms, each of the five books concludes with a doxology. What's that? It's a liturgical formula of praise to God, signifying the completion of the collection. For example, go with me quickly to Psalm 41. Uh, the end of book 1, verse 14, ends this book, quote, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The entire Psalm 150 as well serves as the final doxology to the entire collection. Now, the earliest evidence of this fivefold division of the book of Psalms comes from the Qumran scrolls which scribes copied early and up through the first century of the Common Era. We have at least 30 partial or complete manuscripts of the book of Psalms that have been found at Qumran, the largest manuscript collection, by the way, of any Bible book found there. And so this fivefold division may have been an intentional attempt actually to replicate the fivefold division of the Torah. As the rabbis have put it, quote, Moses gave the five books of the Torah to Israel, and David gave the five books of Psalms to Israel. And so as contrasted with how the Bible Project ministry video showed, no one knows for sure what theme was followed in arranging these five books. They deal with events that traverse an entire millennium. Think about 1400 BC to about 450 BCE. They were written. It begins the, with the earliest psalm written, Psalm 90, being from Moses around again, 1400 B.C. They provide us with the thoughts and the feelings, the psalms do, of, of those who went through these experiences recorded during that time. Especially their God-directed thoughts and their feelings. They are the inspired responses of human hearts to Adonai's revelation of himself in history, in law, and even in prophecy. 
They seem to have been compiled somewhat independently and then brought together into a collection at a later date in time. There is also, by the way, did you know, some duplication in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 14 in book 1 is repeated in Psalm, as Psalm 53 in book 2. A portion of Psalm 40 in book 1 is repeated as Psalm 70 in book 2. And the latter halves of Psalms chapter 57 and 60 are combined as Psalm 108 in book 5. So book number one, as the video showed, is dominated by Psalms of David, consists mostly of personal psalms that arose out of his own experiences. Book two, probably compiled by Solomon and exhibits more of uh, Israel's national interest rather than personal interest of one man. Book number three, probably compiled soon after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And since Psalms 74, 79, and 89 all have references to that event in those, that's that book number three. David may have compiled book number four, focuses more on corporate worship than even the first book does. And finally, the fifth book is also liturgical, but contains several post-exilic psalms after the exile in 586 BC. It probably came into being actually the fifth book around the return around 537 or so BCE, and then a scribe, perhaps Ezra, the scribe, uh, another uh, century later probably wrote the final Psalms 146 through 150 as a conclusion and wrote Psalm 1 as an introduction and then put together all five books into this collection known as the Book of Psalms. Now, many Psalms, as you're flipping through maybe some of them, many Psalms, actually 116 of them, contain these superscriptions. Ever notice those that sometimes identifies who wrote the psalm, uh, maybe the historical setting of the psalm, and other features in these superscriptions. And most English Bibles, unfortunately, in my opinion, display these superscriptions in smaller print, in fine print, suggesting to us as the readers that they're somehow secondary in some way. But that is not what we find in the best manuscripts that we have. As far back as the famous and most respected uh, Aleppo Codex, it's a highly respected book around 930 CE, although the superscriptions of the Psalms, these 116 of them, sometimes appeared centered over the first pair of lines in the Psalm, they usually form the first line or the first pair of lines in the Psalms. Now, either way, there are tiny accent marks in the text as well that indicate that the superscriptions either are verse 1 or are part of verse 1 in each of these 116 psalms, thus making the Hebrew verse numbering differing in many places from the English. The superscriptions are not written in smaller script as somehow they're somehow secondary to the biblical text. And sometimes you'll find English Bibles without these superscriptions. And to me, they're taken away from the Word of God. In the Masada Psalms scroll from the late 1st century BC, the layout, the spacing, and the writing of the psalm titles match those of the Aleppo Codex a thousand years later precisely. So from these psalm titles, we learn again, even from the video, that David wrote at least 73 psalms plus... uh, Number 2, Psalm 2, Acts 4.25 shares that with us. And Psalm 95 from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 quotes from that psalm, mostly in the first two books of the Psalter. We find two Levitical clans wrote 
22 of these psalms. Asaph and his descendants wrote 12 of them. The sons of Korah, 10 psalms as well. Solomon writes two psalms. Uh, Haman the Ezraite wrote Psalm 88. Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 89. Moses again writes Psalm 90. And the other 51 psalms don't specify who wrote them. Some psalm titles you'll see here if you're flipping through them. They indicate some technical names to describe the type of psalm as well. The word psalm uh, emphasizes stringed accompaniments. 57 psalms start with that title. Some have a title of song, indicates a joyful melody. Twelve of the psalms have that label. Some have the label maskil, may refer to a teaching psalm or a contemplative psalm. Thirteen have that label. The meaning of michtam, it's uncertain what that is. Prayer is the label of five of the psalms. And Psalm 145 has the title praise. And there are a few lesser uh, used titles as well. I find this very interesting. Fifty psalms are addressed, quote, for the choir director. And there are other notations describing the kind of instruments to be played as accompaniment or the tune that the song is sung to. Wouldn't it be great if we had those tunes? Some psalms have titles instructing the worshiper as to the intended use of the psalm in worship. The familiar term, selah, right? Selah occurs 71 times in the body of 39 psalms, probably as a musical notation, informing the worshipers either to pause and reflect or else to lift up their voices. And it is not to be read aloud. Let's talk about the psalms as Hebrew poetry for a couple of minutes. The psalms are all prayers written in Hebrew poetry. Now, the leading characteristic of poetry is conciseness. In addition, there are several attributes and elements of Hebrew poetry that we are to keep in mind as we read through the book of Psalms. We find parallelism, number one, parallelism. You said instead of today when we rhyme, we rhyme words, right, as our poetry does today. But the Hebrews rhymed ideas, There are several main types of parallelism. You have synonymous parallelism. The second line repeats the thought of the first line. You'll see that uh, as we look at Psalm chapter 1 next week. You have synthetic parallelism. The second line actually then will take up and develop further a thought that begins in the first line. You have climactic parallelism. The second line takes up some words from the first line and then completes or adds to them. Emblematic parallelism. One line presents an image or a metaphor which the other line will then apply or clarify. For example, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then we have antithetical parallelism. The second line actually contrasts with line number one. Psalm 1 again, chapter verse set, uh, 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The second line is, But the way of the wicked will perish. So it's important as we go through the book of Psalms this summer that we observe this parallelism in its poetry. Why? Because failure to do that often results, and I'm as guilty as the next guy, of erroneous interpretation of the Psalms. For example, one might conclude that the writer is making an important distinction when all he's really doing is just restating the same idea in different words. Figures of speech we find all through Hebrew poetry as well. For example, Psalm 18, 
describes the power of God as seen in uh, what we never see here in San Diego often, except in the mountains, thunderstorms, which apparently was sent in answer to David's prayer in battle. It describes God in these anthropomorphic terms. Literal interpretation of the Bible does not mean that you interpret such figures of speech literally, though. God doesn't have smoke coming out of his nostrils. He does not have fire coming out of his mouth from Psalm 18. And so we have to understand figures of speech when we read through the Hebrew poetry of the book of Psalms. And finally, there is acrostics in the book of Psalms. These are alphabetical psalms where each verse or in the most common case, groups of verses, in the case of Psalm 119, they begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Keep in mind that the Psalms, again, they are poetry, and they have to be read as poetry. You see, if you're like me, and you're an analyst, coming from an accountant or engineering background, if we coldly analyze the Psalms, guess what, folks? And I'm guilty. We miss the entire flavor of the Psalms. They're full of emotion, aren't they? They're full of art. They're full of beauty and figurative language. The psalmists were trying to draw forth not just an intellectual response, but also they were trying to draw forth an emotional response. I like what John Calvin wrote of the psalms. He said this, I have been accustomed to call this book, quote, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented in a mirror. I love that. Well, we have various types of psalms in these 150 different psalms. And so approaches to classifications of these psalms has been varied throughout history. One approach taken, uh, which I like personally, is from 1 Chronicles 16.4. It supports this one approach. And it says to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And so that's, this has led to the following basic types of psalms. And we're going to go through these types over the next eight sessions. We have individual psalms, again, uh, over one, uh, individual laments rather. Whether it's over one's sin or one's longing for justice in the world. Psalms by individuals calling on Adonai for help from distress. National, communal laments we find in the book of Psalms as well. Laments actually outnumber every other kind of psalm in the entire collection. Almost a third of the psalms belong to this category of lament. And I want to park here for a second. This kind of psalm, over one-third of them, the lament type, is designed for grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a biblical language, as it were, for processing the pains of life as we cling to what we believe. You see, lament refuses to give God the silent treatment. How many of you have given him ever the silent treatment in your life? Lament refuses that. Instead, this historic prayer language of lament transforms pain into a platform for worship. Lament psalms typically involve four different elements to them. And we're going to look at some of these in the next number of weeks in our study. They begin with turning. Decide to talk to God while you're in pain. This is the beginning of the lament. Psalm 77 verses 1 and 2. Open it up. 
You'll see that. They decide to turn to God while in pain. Then it moves into the complaining stage. We're laying out the nature and the depth of our sorrow in the lament psalm. Psalm 22, perfect example, verses 1 and 2 of that complain stage. Then we come to the ask stage in the psalm. We embrace the biblical promises later in that Psalm 22. And finally, we see it result in trust. We believe in the trustworthiness of God. That is the typical way to process pain as a platform to worship in two-thirds of the psalm, in one-third of the psalms. Now, unfortunately, many followers today of Yeshua are unfamiliar with lament. That's why I think it's important as we read through this this summer that we get familiar with lament. When it comes to grief, too often, believers fall into two ditches, right? There's the ditch over here, that's denial. The ditch over here is despair. Somehow, followers of Yeshua believe that if you're a true follower of Yeshua, you don't struggle your way through grief. And as a result, they wind up in this ditch. They deny the reality of pain. I'm good. But others on the other ditch become disoriented by deep questions and doubts. And they convince themselves, I'm probably not a believer because of my struggles. But my friends, a careful reading of the scriptures, especially the book of Psalms this summer that we're going to read through, shows us the exact opposite. Real believers struggle. Trusting, trusting is a process. And lament is the language for this fight of faith. My friends, your lament doesn't need to be long. Don't worry about it if it's messy. Your struggles didn't shock God. They're not surprising to God. He has given you this language because he understands your sorrow. How many of you know God can handle your grief? And these sorrowful psalms are in the scriptures for a reason. And when we discover that reason, they provide encouragement. Lament, laments, fuel, endurance. Well, we have those as a good bulk of the psalms. We also have thanksgiving psalms. They center on some act of deliverance that Adonai has granted his people. In some ways, I think a thanksgiving psalm is structured as a continuation or as a response to the lament. We have descriptive praise psalms in the 150 collection, offering praise to Adonai for himself or for his general working. The poets also wrote a pilgrim psalms called Songs of Ascent for singing by our people as they made their way three times a year, pilgriming to, to Jerusalem for the required Moedim, right? For Pesach, for, uh, for Shavuot, and for Sukkot. We have the enthronement psalms. They speak of the Lord as the great king fulfilling his role in some way as reigning or coming back to judge. And we have the messianic psalms, perhaps the most commonly known type of psalm, predicting the coming of the Messiah. We're going to look at one of them next week as well. And finally, we have what we could call the imprecatory psalms. They contain curses on God's enemies. Now, these have created a problem for some followers of Yeshua since he taught his Talmudim, right, to bless their enemies and not curse them. 
And so in the progress of Revelation, it was not easy for the writers of these psalms to see the details of the future precisely. They could not, in a sense, feel the peace about God's ultimate establishment of justice that modern believers like us who read their Bibles do. And so consequently, when the psalms witnessed The psalmist witnessed injustice in the world, oppression in the world, in their lives. They didn't usually know how God was going to deal with it. So they called on him to vindicate himself immediately. And so with the coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, and the added revelation that he provided, we as believers now have a fuller picture of how God is going to now balance the scales of justice. And so I think it's therefore inappropriate for us to pray curses of the sort that we find in the Tanakh. God has recorded them for our benefit, not as examples to follow in their wording, but as examples to follow in their spirit of zeal for the glory of God. Let's talk about some themes of the book of Psalms. Spirit-directed compilers did not organize the Psalms in the order in which the psalmist wrote them. And so consequently, there's no argument, there's no logical progression of thought as the reader makes his way through the book of Psalms. But there are many themes that run through the book of Psalms. Just several come to my mind immediately. The character of God, right? We find this all throughout the book of Psalms. God's attributes are frequently extolled in the book of Psalms. His koach, his his power, his righteousness, his sovereignty, his mercy, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, the character of God. The Psalms reveal an almighty God who is gracious and compassionate, right, to his people, to us as people, but who will impartially judge the wicked. We find the character of God weaved all through as a theme through the book of Psalms. We find a theme of the kingdom of God running through the Psalms as well, the concept of God's ruling on the earth in justice and righteousness through his anointed king. We find the Messiah of God running through the Psalms. Many Psalms are messianic, meaning in whole or in part, that they prophesy of Yeshua and his rule. The worship of God, how many of you know that's huge? There are three great revelations concerning worship in the book of Psalms. Number one, the object of worship. That's critical. The attributes of worship, the attitudes rather of worship, and the activities of worship. You see, the Psalms put a great stress on both personal and corporate worship of God. Worship is an act of offering to God what is due Him because of who He is. The Hebrew word that's actually translated worship, shacha, means to actually bow oneself down. You see, today when somebody does that in a congregation, we look at them and go, oh, that's that's a little weird. Or to pay deferential respect. God's temple, Israel's eternal sanctuary, his holy hill in the Psalms, Mount Zion, are the central places of worship in the Psalms. Fear, awe, joy are the primary attitudes as well that we are to exhibit in our worship. The message of the Psalter then is this in two words. If you get nothing out of this message or if you have fallen, fallen asleep on me is worship God. That's the message. Turn every situation, every situation into an occasion for worship. And finally, the theme that strikes me as well is the experience of us, of man. Many Psalms will flow out, especially the first book out of real-life situations of David. The authors, though, didn't sit down on a beautiful day 
uh, without a clear, you know, care in the world and write a clever poem. That's not what happened. As one commentator put it, quote, the Psalms, I love this, the Psalms are often wet with the tears and the blood of the writer. And so because of this real-life birthplace of the Psalms, God is immediate. He is personal. He's not some, you know, abstract theological idea to the writer here, whoever that was, Korah or, or Moses or David. No, these authors knew what it meant to connect with a living God in the midst of their overwhelming crises. And so this means that to appreciate the Psalms, if we're to appreciate them, we've got to feel with the life situation of the psalmist. The Psalms actually, again, reflect the gamut of our human experience. That gamut is wide, my friends, going from fear, shame, depression, guilt, feeling abandoned by the Lord, Maybe it's utter helplessness, being betrayed and attacked by those you've trusted, as well as, on the other side, great joy, right? Contentment and delight in God. As we move forward to concluding this morning, a couple of main lessons speak to me from the book of Psalms. We're going to see this over the next number of weeks. Number one, praise is important. The Psalms are filled with praise and with exhortations to praise God. To praise God, we have to come to know him as revealed in the word. And we have to be involved with God in our personal lives through prayer and trusting him. Why? So that we can experience, really truly experience his all-sufficient help. Prayer is important. Many of these psalms are prayers. They're cried out to God in the crucible of life. The Psalms show us that no experience in life is too high. No experience in life is too low to exclude God. We're to call on him when we are in the pits. And we're to call on him when we're on the peaks. Main lesson number three is corporate worship. Super important. There's something about the corporate aspect of worship that is satisfying to God and to us. The Psalms are God's corporate worship book. And finally, beauty and creativity are important as well. We see his handiwork out there in the natural world. The Psalms are so full of appreciation for the beauty that God has created. You see, when we enjoy beauty like good music, good art, literature, created by people who are themselves created in the image of God, we should praise God, our creator, for that. But especially we should praise God through the beauty of his creation that's all around us. April, if you'd come up. And so the Psalms mirror the faith of Israel. In them, we, in a sense, we receive windows that enable us to look, look out through the quarters of time to our brothers and sisters in the faith from 25 to 3,500 years ago. The Psalms bridge the gap between then and and today, the ancient world and our present society. Probably better than any other book in the Bible. The book of Psalms, it's hard to put in words. It can revolutionize our lives. 
It can revolution our devotional life. It can revolutionize even our family patterns and the fellowship and witness of the body of the Messiah too. If there's one primary underlining assumption of the book of Psalms, it is the potential efficacy of prayer. A few action points over the next number of weeks. I'm going to ask you to consider these as we close today. Number one, let's read the Psalms devotionally. Continually and repeatedly meditating on the Psalms will help guard, it will help sustain, it will deepen our hearts before God. I don't know about you, I've been walking with the Lord a long time, but I have to have a deeper well of walking with the Lord. The book of Psalms is this vehicle for this. Number two, sing the Psalms. Many of the Psalms today, many of the songs that we sing today are coupled to a modern tune. Pray the Psalms. As you read the Psalms over the next eight weeks devotionally and come to a part that is a prayer in your reading, turn it into your prayer. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, Psalm 25. Or perhaps the Psalm is going to, over the next number of weeks as you read them, maybe it's going to point out a lack in your life. Turn it into a prayer. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord is magnified. Pray, Lord, if I'm honest with you, I don't rejoice in you enough. Help me to magnify you in my life. The dominant message of the book of Psalms is twofold as we close. Very simply, God is good and life is difficult. The life of faith is lived between those two realities, isn't it? Nearly all, nearly all the wisdom that you and I possess, that is to say true wisdom, sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. The Psalms will take us deeper in both of those aspects of wisdom. Let's ask God over the next couple of months to teach us more about himself and to teach us more about ourselves as we study the book of Psalms together in these coming weeks. Stand with me today. Before I invite our brother Jeff up for the Do Not Be Deceived segment today, I just wanted to wrap this up. This is an overview, and I hope it has stirred you up. There are many Psalters out there. If you want to get a separate book than your Bible, that's just the Psalms. Maybe there's a little bit of a devotional in there for each Psalm. Look at it afresh and anew over the next couple of months. Let's spend the summer in the book of Psalms. Let's get to know our God, and let's get to know ourselves through these writers that ran the gauntlet of this life. God is good. Life is difficult. Lord, we ask you to traverse that spectrum and bring it home to us, deepening our heart relationship with you for the rest of this summer. Why don't we stand today as we close? It did give me a, a, a good laugh as I watched the UK hit over 100 degrees. For those in Phoenix, Arizona, we're laughing at that. <laughs> The Lord told Moses how to bless the sons of Israel in this way. Please receive it from the Lord today.
Ye'er Adonai panav elecha v'chuneka. Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem alecha. Shalom. So may the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you his shalom. In the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, all of us who are with him and sold out to him said, Amen. Be amen. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Remember, no service at 10 a.m. next Saturday. Come back 5 p.m. for service. Men's prayer at 8 o'clock Tuesday night. We'll see you then. Shabbat. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>